When I was a kid, there was a song that was on the radio a lot, at least in the mid-1980s. The song was by Mr. Mister, and it was called Kiri Eleison. Went a little something like this. It was like, Kiri Eleison down the road that I must travel, right? And then Kiri Eleison through the darkness of the night. And uh, I didn't know at the time that that phrase, it's actually a beautiful phrase from the Greek language that means Lord have mercy, Uh, but I didn't know what it meant and I couldn't understand the words as a kid. And so what I heard in my mind was not uh, carry a laser, but what I actually heard instead was carry a laser down the road that you must travel. And, And, you know, as I've thought about it, in hindsight, my version makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you are on a lonely, dark road in the middle of the night, what better to help you than a good laser, right? So I heard it that way for years and years. And, and as I thought about that a few months ago, I thought, I know that I have friends who have had the same experience where you heard a song lyric and you misunderstood its meaning, maybe for a long time. So I asked some of my friends to tell me what were some of the songs that they had misunderstood, what were some of the lyrics. So I'm going to share just a few of those with you this morning. Uh, Some of you will remember a song by The Clash. It was called Rock the Casbah. Uh, I had numerous friends that heard that as Rock the Cat Box, (laughs) which I think the only reason you hear it that way is because nobody knows what a Casbah is. Uh, another one, there was a song by Credence Clearwater Revival called Bad Moon on the Rise. Numerous people heard this as there's a bathroom on the right, which is a deeply practical song, just not super fun to sing, I suppose, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, another one uh, by Steve Winwood, Bring Me a Higher Love. A lot of people heard Bring Me an Iron Lung. Let's see. Two tickets, I think that's two tickets to paradise. Two chickens are paralyzed by Eddie Money. That classic Eddie Money tune, two chickens are paralyzed. Um, That one makes no sense to me why you would hear that, but whatever. Okay, Uh, another one, uh, hold me closer, tiny dancer, hold me closer, Tony Danza. A couple of people also had heard this one as hold me close, I'm trying to dance here was the way that they had heard it. So that's a tough one to understand. Uh, And then this one, do you like pina colada? Several people heard, do you like bean enchiladas? And I think that's a Texas thing. I like that version better than the original, to be honest. I love bean enchiladas. So now why do I share that? Uh, Partly because I think uh, all of us have had that experience. And one of the things that can happen when you hear the lyrics wrong is even once you know the right lyrics... It's really hard to hear it the right way, right? Your your brain still wants to go back to the misunderstanding and hear it that way. So for years, even though I knew the song was Kiri Eleison, when I hear it on the radio today, I still will hear Kiri Eleison, right? Those misunderstandings can get locked into your brain. I share that because the same thing can happen to us when we read the scripture, The same thing can happen. I think as we're reading the Bible, all too often, we come away with some misunderstanding of what a passage means, and that misunderstanding gets locked into our minds, and it can be really hard to dislodge that misunderstanding later in favor of the correct understanding. I think that happens especially 
with our favorite passages. Those passages that we hear quoted all the time. Maybe your favorite passage that you've got on a coffee mug or on your wall or on a t-shirt or your life verse. You might think it means one thing and yet it might mean something else entirely. And when somebody comes along and says, this is what the passage actually means, you say, well, okay, I didn't misunderstand the words, but maybe I misunderstood the meaning. But it can be really hard to dislodge the wrong meaning and replace it with the right one. And the danger we face in walking around with misunderstood verses in our minds is that when we misunderstand the scripture, we might also misapply the scripture, right? So if I understand incorrectly what God is trying to say to me in his word, then I may believe things about God's character that aren't true. Or I may try to obey God in a way that the scripture doesn't actually command me to do, right? Or I might not obey him in some way that I'm supposed to, right? So there's real danger in misunderstanding the scripture because when we misunderstand, it leads to misapplication. So what I want to do for the next few weeks, I'm going to be here for four weeks. What I want to do is look at some of the most commonly misunderstood passages in the Bible and I want to bring clarity to them. That's, that's my goal. I want to look at some of these passages that we hear quoted all the time. The four that we're going to look at, there are two from the Old Testament, there are two from the New Testament. They're passages you have probably heard quoted over and over and over again, either in the church or in the broader world, and you may have one understanding of what they mean, and what we want to do is is kind of pull them apart in their context and say, what do these passages really mean, right? So that's that's how we're going to spend the next four weeks. Before I dive into Matthew 7, which is where we're going to be this morning though, what I want to do at the beginning of the series is lay out uh, my goals for this series. Some things I am not trying to do and some things that I am trying to do. All right, so first let me start with a couple of things I am not trying to do. First of all, I am not trying to destroy your childhood memories. Okay, when I first had the idea for this series... One of the passages that I was going to talk about uh, happened to be my mom's life verse. And as I described the series to her, she said, well, that one's my life verse. And if you tell me that it doesn't mean what I thought it meant, I may never forgive you if you ruin my life verse. I ended up not doing that passage. I chose some other passages. But, but I did, I did tell my mom something and I'll tell this to you as well. I promise I will not tear down a house without building another house in its place. Okay, I'll make that deal for you. I'm not going to tear down your understanding of a beloved passage without building something that I think will be stronger in its place, right? So I'm not just trying to to come in and ruin what you've always thought about the Bible, but instead to help us understand it more fully and more clearly. Secondly, I'm not trying to help you win Facebook arguments. Okay, my goal is not that the next time somebody quotes one of these passages, you're able to jump in and say, hey, I know what that means and you're absolutely wrong and I win and you lose. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm hoping to do is just fill our minds with information so we can win. Okay, but what am I trying to do? Let me give three goals for this series. The first one is this. Okay, I want us to improve our ability to study the scripture 
accurately. I want us to improve our Bible study skills. As I mentioned at the beginning, when we misunderstand, we also can misapply. So I want us to know when we come across a passage that we say, okay, it seems to mean this. I want us to know how do I look at the context of a passage, the chapter and the book and the testament and the entire scripture in which it's placed and really understand what it means. How do I study the scripture well? I want us to to enhance our Bible study skills a bit. Secondly, I do want to clarify some of these misunderstood passages. Because again, the ones we're going to look at, and I think you'll see once we dive into Matthew 7, they are passages that are quoted all the time and misunderstood all the time. So I wanted to take a few of the most common ones and help us understand what they mean. And then thirdly, I want us to learn how to obey God's word more faithfully. That the deeper we understand what God's scripture says about who he is and about how we are to obey him, the better we understand, ultimately the the idea is that the better we can obey. When we misunderstand, again, I think that can threaten our application. So I'm going to give you an example of this before we dive into Matthew 7. One passage that we are not looking at in this series but that you may remember if you were with us last fall when we went through the book of Philippians. We talked about Philippians 4.13. All of you have probably heard Philippians 4.13 quoted somewhere. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? And we've heard it in all kinds of contexts. Here's one example of a way that this passage is often used. Right? So you have a football team running onto the field, and they have a banner. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right Now, the implication as you look at it is, I can win this game. Or maybe at least I can play very well and not lose badly. Right, But it raises some questions. What if they lose? What does that say about the strength of Jesus? What if they just get pummeled? What does that say? Or how about this? What if the other team runs out at the same time with the same banner? (laughs) Then what do we do? Right? And this passage has been utilized to say, I can do basically anything that I put my mind to. Anything that I want to do, I can do. Because Jesus is on my team to meet my goals. Right? But if you remember, when we looked at Philippians chapter 4, that's not what it says, right? Philippians chapter 4 is placed in the context of Paul writing to the church of Philippi. And remember, he was in prison as he was writing it. And he's saying to them, look, if you would like to contribute money toward my ministry and toward the defense of the gospel, that would be great. But he says, you know what? I have learned how to be content, whether I am in sickness or I'm in health, whether I have a little bit or I have a lot, right? Whether I'm in abundance or, or whether I'm in want, I've learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstances I'm in. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? He's not saying that Jesus is is there to to help me fulfill my goals, but instead, whatever circumstances I find myself in, in the midst of all things, I can be content, I can honor Jesus, I can trust God, because Jesus gives me strength for that. Right, and those are two vastly different understandings of this passage. And if we misunderstand it, we might begin to believe God has promised us things that he has not promised us. 
And that can undermine in our hearts and minds our trust in the character of God, right? So, so my hope as we look at these passages is not only to fill our minds with information, but to help us to more faithfully obey God's word. Okay, so those are my goals. Improve our Bible study skills, clarify misunderstood verses, and then obey God's word more faithfully. So given that, let's dive into our passage for this morning. If you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to be. I'm going to have it up here on the screen as well if you don't happen to have it with you. Let's read the passage. Matthew chapter 7. Actually, let me back up for a moment before we get there. Let me tell you what we're going to do this morning before we read the passage. We're going to look, and this will be how each one is going to go. How is this passage usually interpreted, right? How is it interpreted in the world or in the church? Secondly, what does it really mean? So we'll look at why the normal interpretation is wrong. What does it really mean? And then thirdly, how do we apply it? All right? So let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure... It will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, no doubt you've heard this passage quoted a ton probably you have really, when you've heard it quoted, you you mostly hear, at least in the broader uh, culture, you hear the first sentence, do not judge lest you be judged. Or maybe you only hear the first three words, do not judge. We're not supposed to judge, right? You hear it all the time. All right, so we want to talk about how is the passage typically understood in our world today. I'm going to summarize how it's normally interpreted, and then I want to give a couple of examples. All right, here's normally how the passage is understood. This is my summary. Never make moral judgments about what other people do, say, or believe, right? Never make moral judgments about what other people do, say, or believe. Uh, what I do is as good or as bad as what you do. What I believe carries as much weight as what you believe. If you disagree with a decision I make morally, you are not allowed to judge that or to say it's wrong. Okay, let me give you a couple of illustrations from our broader popular culture. Uh, the first one is a quote from the actress Sarah Jessica Parker most known for the the TV show Sex and the City. She says this, I don't judge others. I say, if you feel good with what you're doing, let your freak flag fly. I had to practice those words multiple times to get them right. Right, what's she saying? If you feel good with it, then who am I to say it's wrong? Right, I'm not gonna judge you. You don't judge me. Whatever you do, it's fine. Let me give you another one. This is the singer, Dolly Parton. She says, we're not supposed to pass judgment. Our Bible says, judge not, lest ye be judged. She actually quotes it here. We're all God's children. No matter how we try to get to heaven, we all want to go there. We just have our own routes to take, and that's how I look at it. Right? You see what she's saying? You can't judge my path to heaven. I can't judge your path to heaven. One belief system is as good as another belief system. Therefore, don't judge. Right? That's how it's typically used. 
And I'm sure you've heard it in all kinds of contexts, small and large. Sometimes it's used in very mundane ways, right? So maybe you are at a party or at a wedding buffet and you are in the line and there's somebody in front of you and they are filling their plate with the chocolate chip cookies and they look back at you and what do they say? Don't judge me. Right? And your thought might be, I wasn't judging you. I just want you to save me some cookies. Right? Uh, we hear it a lot in the context of sexual ethics. Right? So, so if somebody says that uh, sexuality and sexual behavior are intended by God to be re- reserved for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, you are very likely to hear this verse quoted back to you. Who are you to judge? Don't judge lest you be judged. Right? In other words, it's a way of saying, look, my choices are my choices. They're as good as your choices, so step back. Right? Uh, not to bring up bad memories, but I heard it in 2016 during the election cycle. If I criticize your candidate for a moral decision... You say, who are you to judge? But you can criticize my candidate for a similar decision. Right? And so that the passage is used to say, look, one moral decision is as good as another moral decision. One belief system is as good as another belief system. Never make a moral judgment about what somebody does or says or believes. All right, so let's talk for a few minutes then about why this understanding of the passage misses the mark. And then in a few minutes, we'll dive into what it actually does mean in its original context. So three reasons the usual interpretation misses the mark. First one is this. The Bible actually encourages us to make moral judgments. Okay, there are other spots in the Bible, some of them even the words of Jesus, and I'm going to show you a few, where we are encouraged as followers of Jesus Christ to make moral judgments sometimes. Let me show you just a few. Okay, this is 1 Corinthians 5. Paul wrote, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among you. And this is in the context of sexual immorality in the church of Corinth. And Paul is saying, no, I want you to judge within the church what is morally appropriate and morally inappropriate. And in fact, that judgment may even come to a point where you have to remove a person from your midst because their sin not only threatens their own heart, but it threatens the community of believers in Jesus Christ because sin leads to separation from God. Sin can even lead us down the path of death, right? So he says, you are called to judge within the church. Let me show you a couple more. Matthew 18, these are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, in order to tell you your fault in private, what do I have to do? I have to judge, right? I have to make some judgment that you are at fault. That requires a moral judgment. A couple more. James chapter 5. My brethren, if any, of you, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. And again, in order to turn a sinner from the error of their way, what do you got to do? You got to go to him and say, you're in sin. That's a judgment. 
And James says when you do that, you might turn that person away from the pathway of death. One more, the words of Jesus again, John chapter 7. Do not judge according to appearance, but do judge with righteous judgment. Okay, so we have this one passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Do not judge, lest ye be judged. But then we have multiple passages in the scripture where we're encouraged to make moral judgments. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, how those kind of fit together. But let me make a point here before we move on. I want you to notice with each of these passages that when we are encouraged to make moral judgments, the point of making moral judgments is always for the sake of restoration and life and not for the sake of condemnation and death. In other words, Judgment is never me sitting upon the throne of God and saying, I am greater and superior to you, and therefore I am in and you are out. I am good and you are bad. That's not what we are called to do as people of Jesus who judge, right? That's, that's God's job. But instead, when we are called to exercise judgment, the purpose is, as it says, to pull people away from sin and death. To say, you're headed down a pathway of destruction, and I want to turn you from that pathway of destruction. And in order to do that, I've got to make some sort of moral call about what you do, say, or believe. So think about it this way. I read a story a couple of months ago about a woman named Catherine Warburton. And uh, stories from 1994, one day Catherine Warburton visited the Alaska Zoo. And she visited uh, the uh, exhibit for a polar bear. The polar bear's name was Binky, the polar bear. And she decided she wanted a picture of Binky, right? Uh, But the problem was that there were barriers between her and Binky. There was a a, a kind of a safety barrier that was backed up. And then there was the actual uh, bars to his enclosure somewhat beyond that. Catherine could not get a good photo, she felt, from behind the safety barrier. So she climbed over it and walked right up to the bars and she put her camera through the bars to take a really good close-up of Binky the polar bear. But on that particular day, Binky was in no mood for paparazzi. And he grabbed her, he attacked her, grabbed her leg and tried to pull her through the bars. Now they managed to extricate her from Binky, but she, she broke her leg in the process and spent a long time in the hospital. Later she said, that was the stupidest thing I have ever done. In my life. Now I want you to keep that in mind and imagine for a minute that tomorrow you and I go to the zoo and we're standing and we're watching a polar bear. And I say, you know what? I need a good photo. I'm going to climb on in there and give myself a selfie with the polar bear. And you would say, man, that sounds like a bad idea from start to finish. You're going to get hurt. You're probably going to die. I wouldn't do that. Now, what am I going to say? Hey man, don't judge me. Right? I like polar bears. This is art. I'm an artist. You cannot judge my art. I want to take a selfie with a polar bear. And by the way, you have a dog. And dogs can bite, right? So who are you to judge? And what are you going to say to me? Man, you're crazy. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to save your life, right? The barrier is there because crossing the barrier will result in pain and maybe even death. And so you make a judgment. To do that would be the wrong move, right? When the Bible calls us to make moral judgments, 
That is the essence of what we are called to do, especially within the body of Christ. Not actually to exclude and push people outside the circle, but to say, no, God wants you to know him so deeply. And we want you to be a part of this community of believers. And therefore, I need to warn you, you're headed down the pathway of hurt and pain and death, right? So the Bible calls us to make moral judgments. Second reason the usual interpretation misses the mark. The passage says a whole lot more than do not judge. Okay, we're going to talk about this with each of these passages that we look at, but you cannot simply take one phrase or one segment of a passage and rip it up out of its context and use it as a life philosophy. Okay, it doesn't work that way. Matthew chapter 7 is toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the longest sermons that Jesus gave. Uh, It covers three chapters in the book of Matthew, and I'll give a little bit more detail in a moment about the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, but suffice it to say for now, there's a whole lot more there. And even this section about judgment takes up five verses. We read them at the beginning. There's a whole lot more there, right? I, I have three kids, and those of you who have kids, you know, sometimes they interrupt you, right? So sometimes I'll begin to say something. I'll say, hey, kids. And they'll say something like this. They say, dad, we know what you're going to say. And I go, oh, do you? You know what I'm going to say. And they say, yeah, you're going to tell us that we need to go wash the dishes. Right? And sometimes they're right. But sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes just to mix it up, I might say, you know, actually what I was going to say was go put your shoes on so we can go get ice cream. But I love your idea. Let's wash the dishes, right? (laughs) You got to listen to the end of the sentence. You think you know what it's going to say. You may not, right? And I think what happens with a passage like Matthew chapter 7 is we read, do not judge. We go, got it, Jesus. I know what you're going to say. And Jesus goes, ah, ah." I was still talking. Every one of the passages that we're going to look at, we're going to see the key to understanding them is knowing what's in the context, what comes before, what comes after, where is it placed in the flow of its passage and the flow of its book, right? So the passage says a whole lot more than do not judge. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And then thirdly, everybody makes moral judgments, okay? Everybody does it. You cannot live your life without making some kind of moral judgment. Even out in the broader culture, when people say, do not ever judge, people make moral judgments, right? So let's go back to the quotes I offered earlier. Uh, The one from Sarah Jessica Parker. I mentioned in passing that the show for which she was most famous was Sex in the City, right? And uh, the, the underlying ideal behind Sex in the City was that in the realm of sexual ethics, basically everything goes, right? Nobody can judge what you do as long as, as she says, it feels good. Let your freak flag fly, right? But what's interesting is a couple of years ago in an interview, looking back on that show, she said, you know, in light of our culture today and in light of things like the Me Too movement, we probably would need to go back and adjust some of the moral decisions made on that show, right? Because there is a cultural movement to say, hey, look, sex should not be something that is forced, coerced, or whatever it is, right? That's a moral judgment. Now, you and I may say that's not a morality, but it is a line, right? It's a line drawn that you say, on this side of the line, you're right. On this side of the line, you're wrong. So even somebody who says, hey, if it feels good, do it, has to come back and say, but don't do this. 
right? Or, or Dolly Parton, right? Dolly Parton says, do not judge, right? One decision is as good as another decision. Then you have to ask Dolly, on what basis do you have the moral authority to say to Jolene, do not take your man just because you can, right? Jolene may come in. She says, what? My beauty is beyond compare with flaming locks of auburn hair and ivory skin and eyes of emerald green. And I want your man, right? So I'm going to take him. How can you say no? That's a moral judgment. Some of you are like, what is happening right now? Okay. Here's all I would say. Jolene is bad. She's a bad, bad person. We hate her. Okay. She's a home wrecker. But how do we make that determination? Right? How is it that millions of people have listened to that song and gone, I hate Jolene? That's a moral judgment, isn't it? You cannot live without making moral judgments. Right? So, so the passage does not say anything goes, one decision is as good as another decision, you must never make judgments. All right, so what does the passage mean? That's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes. I'm going to summarize, and then I want to walk through a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount where the passage is placed to clarify its meaning. Okay, here's my summary of what the passage does mean. When you make judgments, do so carefully and charitably. Okay? When you make judgments, do so carefully and charitably. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 7 is placed in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' longest sermons. And really, if I could summarize the the, the key idea of the Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus says, these are the actions and attitudes of people who belong in the kingdom of God, right? So this is what the kingdom of God ought to look like, and these are what the people of God ought to look like and how they ought to act in that kingdom, okay? So Jesus begins with the famous Beatitudes, which are essentially mindsets that we want to have in order to be blessed by God, right? So blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So there's, there's humility, It has things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy, right? So Jesus begins by setting our mindset, and he says, this is the kind of people you want to be. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is basically an exposition of these Beatitudes. So Jesus says, here's what these Beatitude people look like. And here are some things that could keep you from being beatitude people, right? So he talks about how to deal with conflict. He talks about pride, especially when it comes to religious observance, right? Don't parade around so everybody can see how righteous you are, but instead come before God with humility. He talks about how we deal with money. He talks about anxiety, Right, And then here in chapter 7, what he does is he introduces something that can be a barrier between us and other people and us and God. He introduces something that could prevent us from being people who are merciful and righteous and meek like God wants us to be. And what that is, is when I walk around with an attitude toward other people of condemnation, When I walk around with an attitude toward other people of superiority, and that is I make judgments for the purpose of condemning and saying, I am in the special club and you are outside. What I'm doing is I am tearing down the people of God. And in fact, I am misunderstanding how God acts toward me. 
I'm misunderstanding and, and forgetting the reality that I am a sinner who's been forgiven by God. And so Jesus simply says, I want you to be extremely cautious when you make moral judgments. It's not that you never judge, but instead remember that whatever standards you use to judge, you're going to be judged by the same standard. So always remember who you are and who God is. Right? Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Right? So the main idea is this, that my goal in life is not to look at you and find the ways that you are less than I am and I am greater. My goal is not to build a set of standards that I can obey, but that you fail at. Right? So, so that when I judge, how do I judge? Well, there are a couple of principles that Jesus gives us in this passage. The first one is this. Make sure that your standard is correct. Right? Make sure that you're judging by the standards of Jesus. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees as an illustration of a group of people who had their standards off. I want to show you this from Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Right now, I love this passage because here's what Jesus says. He goes, look, this is an example of what it means to judge by the wrong standards. Okay, here's what the Pharisees did. They had created a set of commandments that they said, as long as you follow these, you'll be good. You'll be righteous. You'll be accepted by God and you can be accepted by us. Right, so they had all of these rules about how much you tithe, when you tithe, what you need to do on a day-to-day basis just in order to be as righteous as the Pharisees, right? And the standards were so cumbersome that only one group of people very conveniently fit within it, right? In other words, essentially what they had done is they had looked at themselves, they said, here's the things that we do, we'll draw a circle around ourselves, and if you want in, you got to do what we do. Right, so they would walk into your house and look at your spice cabinet right, and go, have you given 10% of the cayenne pepper? Right? And if you hadn't, you were out. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you've created these laws, but you know what you lack? Well, man, it's some big stuff. Mercy. Justice. Faithfulness. You lack the love of God. You lack an understanding that that God directs his love towards sinful people. You lack an understanding that the justice of God seeks to elevate those who are low. You're missing some big stuff. And anybody who thinks Jesus didn't have a sense of humor has not read passages like this. He says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Imagine I have you over tonight for pasta, right? And, and as I'm finishing the meal, I've got the strainer over there and I'm looking very carefully and I go, I've got all the dirt. Uh, there were some bugs in there. Don't worry about it. I got them out. 
And then I put the plate in front of you and there is the head of a camel in your pasta. You go, man, you missed something in the straining process. That's what Jesus says. You judge by the wrong standard. We have all kinds of standards that we use, don't we? We, we often, as the scripture encourages us not to do, we judge by outward appearance. You may remember that famous passage from 1 Samuel 16 where the prophet Samuel is called to go and anoint a new king in Israel, right? And so God says, I want you to go and anoint a king from the sons of Jesse. And so he goes to Bethlehem and the sons of Jesse, all except for David, they line up. First one comes out, his name is Eliab. Eliab is tall and good looking and strong. And Samuel thinks that's gotta be the guy. And what does God say? No, do not look at his outward appearance for I have rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, right? And, and this really hits at the heart of what had happened in Israel, by the way, which is the first king in Israel, his name was Saul. And do you know the primary qualification that Saul had that made everybody want him? He was super duper tall. It says he was a head taller than everybody else around. But he was morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so God says, Samuel, I don't want you to look at what's on the outside, right? But we do it all the time, don't we? We judge by appearance, even if we try not to, don't we? We, we do judge by how tall or short a person is or, or maybe how much they weigh or maybe what color they are or, or maybe it is how they dress, right? We, we make these judgments of a person's character at first sight. Right? Or maybe it's not external appearance. Maybe, maybe we say, I'm, I'm really good at not judging by external appearance, but, but you've got a whole other list of things, right? Do they let their kids have smartphones? Do they go to private school, public school, homeschool? Is she a working mom? Is she a stay-at-home mom? Do they follow Dave Ramsey or some other financial plan? Do they eat clean or do they go back to the wedding buffet for a third cookie, right? right? And so we set all these standards by which we determine you're, you're in or you're out, you're good or you're bad. And, and what Jesus says is this, you better make sure that standard is correct, right? One thing the Pharisees did is, is they would say to everyone else, hey, you're not doing enough to obey God. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're not lifting a finger to help them. You call them lazy. Guess what you are? Right, so make sure your standard is correct. Is the standard by which you're judging, can you draw a straight line from the word of God? Secondly, attend to your own sin first. Attend to your own sin first. This is the imagery Jesus uses of the speck and the plank. And again, another funny picture. Jesus says, you go up to somebody and you go, hey, I see a little something there on your eye, Right? But meanwhile, you have a log on your face. You see the tiniest detail. But you don't see your own sin. So be careful, right? And he's not saying you've got to be perfect morally or spiritually before you reach in and make a moral judgment. What he is saying is you approach that encounter with an attitude of humility. Why? Because you are not as good usually as you think you are. You are not as righteous as you think you are. One of my favorites in this day and age is how often uh, in my generation and older, we will go, man, those, uh, those millennials and those Gen Z kids, they sure look at their phones a lot, right? 
I know, because I just read three articles about it today <laughs> on Instagram. Right? And, and, and so we make a judgment of others when we fail ourselves. Right? And so Jesus says, I just want you to know, you're probably not as righteous as you think you are. So be careful. Right? In fact, that's where the Sermon on the Mount ultimately leaves us. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, here's the standard of righteousness. Right? You say you're not supposed to murder. Hey, that's a good start. But let me tell you something. If you have hated somebody in your heart, that's where murder begins. Right? You, you say don't commit adultery, but let me tell you something. If you have lusted in your heart, that's where adultery begins. Right? You've, you've committed adultery in your heart. Right? And Jesus is not suggesting that the literal consequences of murder or adultery are the same as hatred or lust. What he is saying is this, that sin begins here. It doesn't start out here. And so he sets a bar and he says, can you leap over that bar? He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And everybody in the audience, I promise you would go, then I'm out. But then Jesus ends it and he says, but here's, here's what you do. He says, I want you to build a foundation, not on the shifting sand of your own righteousness, but on the solid rock of my teaching, of who I am. Because through Jesus, we are given the righteousness of God because of his death, because of his resurrection. And so Jesus would say, look, when you are called to judgment, you do so carefully and charitably in the spirit with which God moved toward you in Jesus Christ. All right, so quickly as we close, let me offer a few principles then. First of all, always err on the side of grace. Another way I could say this is simply this, believe the best. Right, when you look at a person and you see initially maybe how they present themselves, what they say, what they do, there are probably 10,000 things you're unaware of about that person's life. And they could do the same to you. And so again, it is not that you never make a moral judgment, but always err first on the side of grace. Secondly, pray before you confront. Not only pray before you confront, but also ensure that you have the relationship with this person, either as their authority or as their friend, in order to step into their life. Pray for wisdom, pray for humility, pray for understanding. Thirdly, judge by God's standards rather than your own. Make sure you can draw a line from the scripture to this pattern in this person's life rather than align from what you think is right or wrong, in your own opinion. Fourthly, remember that you are a sinner. Remember that I am a sinner. And approach with humility. Because all of us are in need of the grace of God. And then lastly, remember that our goal is restoration and not condemnation. Restoration, not condemnation. So I always approach with the mindset of, I want you to experience the life that God has for you, the peace that God has for you, and the path that you're on, the pattern that you're setting, whatever that pattern may be that is opposed to God's will in the scriptures, that's not the path of life and peace. It's the path of pain and destruction. 
And so we pray that as we speak into the lives of those we know, that our goal is to draw them back closer to Jesus and closer to his people for the sake of restoration. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. And we are grateful for the grace and the kindness that you have displayed toward us through your son, Jesus Christ, that he died for our sin and he rose again. And so all of us in this room, we know that apart from your grace, we're destined for death and eternity apart from you. But you were merciful. And so, Father, we pray that as we seek to sharpen one another and seek to speak into one another's lives, that we would approach one another with the same spirit with which you approached us, of grace and mercy. At the same time, Father, I pray that we would not, that we would not shrink back when, when you may be calling us to truthfully and kindly speak into the life of a brother or sister who needs to know that they're on a pathway of destruction. Father, it takes so much wisdom, more wisdom than we have. And so we pray for wisdom from your spirit. We thank you for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.